Hi everyone, my name is Beth. You can call me B. Welcome to Let's Be Real. I don't know if you can hear that sound, but those are the birds singing. It is currently 6 a.m. And if I'm whispering, it's because I don't want to wake everybody in the house. So apologies for that. But actually, it fits in with our topic of the day, which is erasure of Sarokin voices. Hello, yes. What a beautiful segue. Disclaimer, I am not going to be talking about the politics aspect of this because I am a dumbass, basically. I don't know enough about politics in general, Malaysian politics in particular, to have much of an informed opinion. I am mostly going to be talking about erasure from the perspective of a Malaysian Sarawakian person, what I've observed in the media, what I've observed in my daily life, and so on. Uh, what is erasure? how it affects Sarakians, and hopefully what we can do moving forward to rectify the situation. Okay, first of all, what is the definition of erasure? The removal of writing, recorded material, or data. The removal of all traces of something. Obliteration. Okay, a little history lesson for you guys. Uh, Sarawak used to have an organization called the Borneo Literature Bureau. The BLB, which is funny because the initials are the same as my full name, but never mind. That's neither here nor there. This organization ceased to exist in 1977 when it was taken over by the federal body, Dewan Bahasa dan Pustaka. I legit did research for this, you guys. I bought a book. I, it's a physical book. It's here in my hands right now. I'm going to be reading some excerpts from it. Uh, it's called Media and National Building, How the Iban Became Malaysian by John Postil, Postil, whatever. Okay, this is from a section called The Significance of the Borneo Literature Bureau, just to uh, lay the foundation for you guys of what exactly the BLB was and the significance of it, you know, like how it says. To the literary scholar, the Bureau's books are an excellent source for the study of Bornean languages and literatures a study still in its infancy. As Sutliff, an authority on the Iban language, has remarked, 31 years ago, Derek Freeman told me that Iban folklore probably exceeds in sheer volume the literature of the Greeks. At the time, I thought Freeman excessive. Today, I suspect he may have been conservative in his estimate. At a time when much of the oral tradition had disappeared, Iban books provide unparalleled insights into Iban's social philosophy and epistemology. Wow, what a big word. They are instructive about Iban values of achievement and self-reliance, of discretion, of restraint, of self-effacement and understatement. Okay, so up until the 70s, we had this treasure trove of information and resources in Iban, one of the major indigenous languages, right, of Sarawak. But, spoiler alert, it did not end well. I am reading from another section called Iban Print Media, From Boom to Bonfire. In 1966, the Malaysian Prime Minister Tunku Abdul Rahman made use of emergency powers to remove Ninkan from power. Instead, he installed a more pliable Iban, 
Tawisli. The Tunku was a firm believer in the need for a strong national language, for language is the soul of the nation. He was convinced that under Tawisli, there was a much better chance of the people developing a Malaysian consciousness. Radio Sarawak, later RMS and RTM, and Borneo Literature Bureau producers and authors were struggling to preserve a language and a culture that in the mid-1960s lost out to the new national language imported from Malaya. Oral tradition in Kuching has it that soon after Dewan Bahasa dan Pustaka, Malaysia's language planning and development agency, took over the Borneo Literature Bureau in 1977, they had all the books in Iban and other Bornean languages buried. Shortly afterwards, the mass media grave was discovered by a reader who rescued some of the books. To prevent future fines, my informants allege that the new cultural authorities resorted to a traditional agricultural practice known as open burning. If this is true, what in the 1960s had been a moderate literary boom had ended up feeding a bonfire. This is like a page out of colonizer textbook right here, allegedly, okay? Allegedly, our books were burnt, well, buried and then burnt. Allegedly, allegedly. I do not want to be sued. So for the sake of everybody coming together to form this new quote-unquote Malaysian consciousness, um, the Iban people had to sacrifice this treasure trove of information, of resources. It was a literary boom. I can't imagine like the pain, the heartbreak that the authors felt. And I have no doubt in my mind that this incident set Sarawak um, literature back by decades. Also, that, that part about Malaysian consciousness is, frankly, excuse my French, bullshit. It is implying that only West Malaysian consciousness is Malaysian consciousness. I mean, the minute that Sarawak agreed to form Malaysia, Sarawakian consciousness became Malaysian consciousness. And this is something that we will see, that I will talk about, that I will bring up again and again, how Sarawakian voices, Sarawakian narratives are always um, othered. We are not the majority, we are not the norm, therefore we are not important or we don't exist, basically. Okay, moving on, moving on. Let me talk a little bit about education. I am basing the following statements on what I could find online, so if I'm wrong, please correct me if anyone has the current Tajara textbooks from Form 3 to Form 5, I highly encourage you to count the number of chapters where Sarawak is mentioned and then compare it to the chapters where Tanah Melayu is mentioned or, you know, West Malaysia and then get back to me. So based on what I could find online, in the Form 3 textbook, out of 8 chapters, only 1 is about Sabah and Sarawak. 1.5 if you count the sections in Chapter 7 about Penentangan Masyarakat Tempatan. You know, the one where... Uh, I think they mentioned Rentap, and so on and so forth. Form 4 Sejarah textbook is even worse. Out of 10 chapters, maybe half a chapter is about Sabah and Sarawak. In the Form 5 Sejarah textbook, there is no full chapter on Sabah and Sarawak, but they do mention Borneo here and there, and they go into the 1963 Malaysia Agreement and the events leading up to it. So out of 9 chapters, I'd estimate maybe half a chapter or maybe one chapter, is about Sabah and Sarawak. All of this to say, not only do we prioritize West Malaysian voices over East Malaysian ones, we often conflate Sabah and Sarawak as if they are interchangeable. 
as if our histories are synonymous, when actually our histories are vastly different. And if we don't learn about Sarawakian history in school, where else would we learn it? A lot of Sarawakians are ignorant about their own history because we were never taught this in school. Only if you have a special interest in it would you research it. And come on, nobody in secondary school is going to research history. You know what I mean? And I feel like we're doing the young people of Malaysia a disservice by only providing like half the story. Not even half, a third of the story. Moving right along, representation in media. Okay, we all know um, that films, mainstream movies, mainstream series and like TV shows are very centered on West Malaysia and mostly KL, mostly urban areas in West Malaysia. And speaking from a from the viewpoint of an actor or of a director, if you don't fit in, if you don't speak, look or behave like the majority, you won't get far in the movie industry, in the Malaysian movie industry. It's basically assimilate or get the fuck out, you know? And you might be thinking, well, assimilation is good, right? Um, masyarakat majmu, harmony, aman damai, salam satu Malaysia, right? But cultural assimilation, the definition of cultural assimilation, is the process in which a minority group or, or culture comes to resemble a dominant group or assume the values, behaviors, and beliefs of that dominant group. A good example of this that we can all relate to, Anthony Joseph Anak Hermas Rajiman. A lot of my West Malaysian listeners might be thinking, who? Who is that? Let me tell you about Anthony Joseph. For the longest time, people thought he was Malay, and since West Malaysian is seen as the default in Malaysia, and Malaysians from Borneo have been inundated with West Malaysian content since birth, they can code switch like nobody's business. So people probably assumed he was from Semenanjung as well. And to be quite honest, these assumptions probably helped his career take off in those early days. I am, of course, talking about Tony Yusof, one of the most popular mainstream actors in Malaysia today. Okay, I'm not saying this Bidayu boy from Kuching changed his name to something more conventionally Malay-sounding, but I am not not saying that either. Also, a little tangent here, if you really think about it, assimilating into the dominant group just to get a chance at telling your own unique story is the fucking height of irony. Once your culture has fully assimilated, there's usually nothing culturally unique left. But anyway, I digress. Let's talk about the kind of representation Sarawakians get in Malaysian media. The stereotypes. I'm obviously generalizing here, but it's like the only time West Malaysian film studios are interested in explicitly Sarawakian content is if it fits into their certain preconceived notions of Sarawak. There's like five basic tropes or stereotypes of how West Malaysians see us as follows. 1. The Noble Savage Usually, this stereotype is portrayed in documentaries. 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 <laughs> Stressing on the wrong syllable. Okay? So, behold. A quaint and exotic species. The Panan. They live peacefully. An idyllic, nomadic lifestyle that is all but cut off from the rest of the world. They make their homes in the heart of the Borneo rainforest, relying on the jungle to provide sustenance in simple villages that can only be accessed by a five-hour ferry trip and a 16-hour drive by pickup truck. Beskan, hidup di kampung memang indah. 
tak stress macam hidup di bandar. Sure, they don't have Wi-Fi or fire stations or a reliable source of running water, but guys, it's so romantic. They're so pure. They're living the simple life. The noble savage. The second trope, the second stereotype, is a subgenre of the noble savage. The tourist bait. Strong and silent, fully decked out in traditional regalia. And I know a lot of people don't like this word because they think the concept doesn't exist or it's being exaggerated, but this, this trope is a form of appropriation. Malaysians love using our quote-unquote exotic culture when it might entice potential tourists to visit, but when it comes to, let's say, a tattoo expo, suddenly the same culture is barbaric and vulgar and I quote, does not reflect the real Malaysia which is full of manners and morals. Our culture is not a costume. Our culture is not a prop. It is not a buffet where you can pick and choose whatever aspect will further your agenda and then throw away once you're done with it. The third stereotype, the Iban youth leaving their rustic hometown for a new life in the big city. And then the fourth stereotype, the Iban youth returning to their rustic hometown for Gawai after spending some time in the big city. And then the fifth and final stereotype, Henry Golding. Honestly, I don't blame West Malaysian audiences for not being aware of Sarawakian people or culture because how can you be aware of something you've never seen? How can you be aware of something you didn't even know existed? And that's the key, education and representation. We need Sarawakian stories to be told in the mainstream media, but we also need Sarawakian people to tell them. Anyway, so what are the effects of erasure of Sarawakian voices? What are the effects of the misrepresentation or underrepresentation of Sarawakian people in Malaysian media? The first thing that comes to mind is microaggressions. So for people who are unfamiliar with this term, microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults toward any group, particularly culturally marginalized groups. So, for example... Uh, here are some of the microaggressions that I myself have faced from from strangers. Okay, so this is when I used to travel to KL semi-regularly. One of the most common ones would be the taxi uncle, right? They would ask, where are you from? And I would say, Sarawak. And then they'd say, welcome to Malaysia. Or, pandai juga, cakap BM. Something like that, you know? And another example of when I was studying in uni... In Kuching, Kuching, Sarawak, okay. Um, and one of my uni friends, he's from West Malaysia. And this is a good example of a microaggression that is not, that wasn't malicious, you know, he didn't have bad intentions. But he would often slip up and say stuff like, oh, when I go back to Malaysia, or, you know, like, for Chinese New Year, I'm going back to Malaysia too, blah, blah, blah. And this is, it's not, the worst thing in the world, but it's it's very othering. It's like, oh, I mean, I guess you're Malaysian, but not like really Malaysian. And don't even get me started on this whole um, stereotype of living in trees, riding crocodiles, using sampan to go to school, you know. 
First of all, no Sarawakian has ever lived in a tree. We live in longhouses, not tree houses, so jot that down, okay? And basically, it feels like even when we're trying to educate West Malaysians, we are constantly being othered. We are reminded again and again in so many tiny little ways that we are alien. We do not belong. And it is exhausting. After a while, we kind of just stop trying. Another thing that I've been noticing more and more as we are living in alam cyber technology takini, anytime a Sarawakian praises their home state, West Malaysians will react negatively. They'll say stuff like, Yalah, negeri orang terpaling dalam dunia ni kan? Terpaling, terpaling, terpaling harmony. And it's like we're being punished for speaking highly of Sarawak. And I know it's made me think twice about sharing Sarawak-centric sentiments on my social media. I mean, I'm still going to do it, but nowadays, for every pro-Sarawak or Borneo-centric comment I post out, I am mentally bracing myself for the negative reaction. And that is a shitty feeling. I really wonder why some West Malaysians feel the need to react negatively. I mean, on one hand, okay, I get it. You're sick and tired of Sarawakians angkat bakul all the time. I don't blame you. Sure, excessively praising Sarawak for being this perfect multiracial utopia is inaccurate and irresponsible because we are nothing of the sort. Sarawakians are prejudiced. We are racist, especially towards Indians and black people. But that is another topic for another episode. But I do think we need to critically examine why when a Sarawakian expresses their love for Sarawak, sometimes without even mentioning West Malaysia, we get backlash for it. Is it because the mainstream media has fed us this narrative of Sarawak being inferior to West Malaysia and the minute we have the audacity to refute it, it provokes this visceral reaction, this bitter, passive-aggressive, you're-not-all-that kind of response? Or maybe it's because West Malaysians are so used to being the center of every narrative that they see an omission of their perspective as a deliberate attack on them, even though it was just omission, it wasn't an attack. I don't know if I'm being too sensitive here, but to me, this is just another form of censorship. It's tone policing. It's like, let me get this straight. Not only do we not have a voice in West Malaysian-centric media, we can't even speak about our own state, about what we know and love intimately. I mean, if we don't speak about Sarawak, who will? Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up with some final thoughts. The way I see it, um, if we continue with the status quo, we have two options. Option one, just don't tell Sarawakian stories. And option two, contribute to misinformed stereotypes and perpetuate the othering of Sarawak. Neither of these options are acceptable. Not to me, anyway. We need to get rid of this status quo. We need to rock the sampan a little bit. Sabah and Sarawak are always treated as an afterthought, if they're even thought of at all. I don't expect Semnanjung people to suddenly become experts in the nuances of Sarawakian narratives overnight, but the good news is, they don't have to be experts. You just have to sit down and listen every now and then. I mean, it's easy to be inclusive. East Malaysians do it all the time. What frustrates me is that, to some people, it's apparently not worth the extra five minutes it takes to Google or fact-check something. 
This divide between East and West only breeds resentment. I am not gonna lie, I love my Samranjung friends, but there is a bitterness from being ignored for so long. After this forced assimilation and systemic erasure, can you blame us for being wary? We all need to unlearn our respective biases. Stop centering West Malaysian voices. Start centering East Malaysian ones for a change. But I really feel like this new generation is heading in that direction. They're more open to learning and reforming their opinions, or at least that's the impression I get from the posts and the comments I see online. We're more global, more connected, more vocal about our needs. Hopefully, Sarawakians will start being more outspoken, and West Malaysians will start being more receptive. Honestly, I'm sorry I don't have like a better solution. It feels like a cop-out, but I think we just need to fucking talk to each other, man. Just sit down and fucking talk. You know, oh well, obviously, not physically, because it's a pandemic and social distancing. Hashtag stay safe, stay home, duduk rumah. But, you know, that's the great thing about living in this current era. We have the internet, we have access to someone across the ocean, is right at our fingertips. And if we don't take advantage of that, I think that's dumb. Anyway, um, in the spirit of elevating Sarawakian voices, I'm going to end this episode with some shout-outs of a few Sarawakian groups, entities, uh, whatever, which I think are really cool and you should give them a follow, subscribe, like, whatever. I'll be leaving all the links and stuff in the show notes. Wow, listen to me, I'm a fucking podcaster. Anyway, first off, the Tuyang Initiative. Tuyang means friend in Kenya. And basically, they are an arts and talent management company that aims to provide meaningful livelihood through the creative and cultural sectors, enabling the continuity of its traditions, arts, and culture, connecting mainstream audiences with indigenous people and cultures in ways that stay true to its origins, delivered directly by cultural practitioners from the indigenous communities. This ranges from cultural classes and workshops to original exhibitions, showcases, stage performances, and more. And also, they recently released a um, book slash... It, it's, it's a compilation of traditional tales and also a coloring book. Uh, it's up for pre-order on their site. Second is the Filmmakers Company, empowering lives through authentic stories. They do commercials, short films, and documentaries. Documentaries. Docu- documentaries. 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 Anyway... You guys remember that um, Petronas Gawai ad last year? These guys provided production support for that ad. And that's what I've been saying. It's one thing to try and tell Sarawakian stories, but if you actually involve Sarawakians in Sarawakian narratives, it will only strengthen the story. Third, we have Dream Much Visuals. It's one word, Dream Much, D-R-E-A-M-M-U-C-H. They are travel and adventure filmmakers. One of their documentaries, why is that word so hard for me to pronounce? Anyway, one of their docs include People of the Land, in which collaborators from the Borneo Benkel 2018 Creative Residency shared their thoughts on art, inspiration, culture, and purpose after experiencing 11 days of unbridled creative collaboration in Kuching, Sarawak. I highly recommend you check it out. It's, it's beautiful, it's lush, and it's very inspiring. Next, we have ilovborneo.my. They produce society, culture, and lifestyle content. They post things like travel articles and facts about the different ethnic tribes in Sarawak and stuff like that. 
If you go to their Facebook, they even have a couple of videos. It's a series about tattoos and drinking culture in Borneo. Very good place to start if you want to know more about Sarawak. And lastly, we have the Asen Project. It is a YouTube channel that focuses on lifestyle content, life hacks, and culture. The main host is Kayan, I think. I'm assuming because of the channel name. Asen means race in Kayan. Race or like um, group of people. They feature a mixture of interviews, commentary, and vlogs. If you are a West Malaysian who's never been to Sarawak or who's never had an in-depth conversation with a Sarawakian, I highly recommend this channel. And that's it, you guys. Oh my god, wow. We are at the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned something new. I hope my voice was not too annoying and so on and so forth um let me know if you want to hear more about this particular topic i might expand on what i've said but yeah uh it's a very complex complicated topic so i kind of this has kind of been an overview i couldn't really go too much into everything otherwise this episode would be five hours long feel free to uh, suggest any topics you want me to cover anything you want me to talk about because I will need topics to talk about because apparently I'm a podcaster now. Thanks for listening and stay safe, everybody. Bye!